Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 112 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you know that every once in a while I read a book and it amazes me and uh, I try to hunt down the author. And that's exactly what happened with our guest today. His name is Les McEwen and he's actually a business strategist who also spends a little bit of time in the church space. But I was reading a book that, and I'll tell the story later, that was recommended to me by a friend for years that was always on my, yeah, I got to read that book thing. Well, I read it and it melted my mind. So it's called Predictable Success. He's written more than that. He's written The Synergist and other books as well. But Les McEwen has started over 40 businesses and began to see patterns. And he talks about those patterns. When I was reading through this book, I'm like, well, that's not just like businesses. That's church. That's your church. That's my church. And so uh, he's going to be extremely generous by sharing his framework, what he's learned, and I don't think it's going to take you very long to find yourself in the picture. In fact, you might do what I did, which is to share this with a number of friends and tell them about it. Because when you see yourself in the mirror, you kind of go, oh, that's what I'm struggling with. So anyway, hey, uh, he read my mail. I hope he reads yours. Les McEwen is my guest today. I want to tell you about a couple of things. First, I've got a second podcast that I'm launching next week. That's right. It comes out on Monday, November the 7th. So I'm going to keep doing this. This is going to be around for a long, long time. Um, yeah, I don't know how long, but until I get bored doing it or until you stop listening, one of the two, I don't know. Uh, but I, I live in Canada, as you know, and I have a real heart for the church in Canada, and we live in a post-Christian, post-modern culture. So if you're a Canadian listener, and I know about 15% of the people who listen to this podcast are Canadian, about 80% are American. Um, but if you're one of those Canadian listeners, make sure you subscribe right now to the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. I've got a couple of preview episodes up on iTunes already. Episode one drops on Monday, November the 7th. It will drop. It's a monthly podcast beginning of every month, first Monday of every month. You'll get it. And if you subscribe, you'll just never miss it. So it's called the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Now, some of you are like, well, what if I'm an American? Or, you know, what if I'm Australian or European? Hey, you can listen, man. We, we, we're Canadians. We're not going to like keep you out. We, we can't do that. that. That's like completely on us. So you can subscribe and maybe it will give you an opportunity to see what's going on uh, to the north or to the west or to the east or wherever you happen to be from. And hopefully it gives you a glimpse into ministry in a slightly different but fairly familiar context. And that is my context of Canada. So anyway, I'm launching that. Really excited for that. Also want to welcome a brand new partner to the podcast. Regular listeners already know Scott Magdalene because he was actually on episode 93 of the podcast and he has this fascinating startup that he began called Trained Up Leadership. And Trained Up is all about training your staff. So, so tell me if this has ever happened. You've done a volunteer training night. You have worked so hard for that. You emailed everybody a bajillion times and half of your volunteers showed up. Anybody ever been there? Yep. Well, the challenge with the traditional model, which we all do, is that everybody just shows up, you know, if they can make it. And then, you know, somebody got sick or uh, the kids got sick or they couldn't make it or the weather was bad or, you know, the playoffs were on. I don't know. You, you know how that goes in church world. Well, you see, a lot of us just say, well, you can only be trained if you come to us. So what Trained Up does is it actually brings the training to people. You can take all of your teaching, put it online. He has the whole delivery system to do that. And if you're interested in finding out more, here's what I'd encourage you to do. And I, I would encourage you to go to the show notes today, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 112. And you can actually see a free book from Trained Up that outlines the five-step process for flawless volunteer onboarding. So 
That is a free gift for you today, or you can just go straight to trainedup.org if you want more information. Also, for those of you who were at the very first Rethink Leadership Conference, do you know that we're doing it again in Atlanta and we anticipate it is going to sell out? So you can get some super early bird rates right now if you go to rethinkleadership.com. We've got some incredible speakers lined up. We've got a great couple of days at the end of April in Atlanta, and I would love for you to be a part of it. People just raise about the first one. And it's a different kind of conference. TED style talks, really short, hyper practical, lots of breakouts where you can ask your questions. You sit around tables, not in rows. So you actually connect with other people and leaders and people love that. And it's kind of exclusive. It's actually only for senior pastors, lead pastors, executive pastors, or campus pastors. So basically you're going to be surrounded by people who live in your world. So Head on over to RethinkLeadership.com before it's too late. And now, without further ado, here is my, at least to me, fascinating conversation with Les McEwen, author of Predictable Success, The Synergist, and many more, and a guy who I think is about to melt your brain. Well, Les, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. Great to be here. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. So we're talking to church leaders today, and you've got some familiarity in that space, but you spend a lot of your time in the business world, right? Tell us, um, you had some theories early on in your leadership about why businesses or organizations or even churches were successful. Tell, Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I was a bit of a, a, a ghastly nerdy kid. Uh, I, I was fascinated by business. And I don't mm. know why. And I used to love it when my dad took me into uh, his office and I could play around with adult things like paperclips. And <laughs> so when I, when I um, qualified as a, as a CPA, which is what I started my career as, a uh, chartered accountant, which is the British equivalent, you can probably gather um, from my accent, I'm not from these parts. I'm originally from uh, the United Kingdom. Right. I, re- I relocated here 20 years ago, but my accent has decided not to relocate. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, I, when I qualified as, a, as an accountant, I did it because I had been advised by a great mentor that it was the best way to find out, learn about business if that was what I was interested in, which I was. And so I um, very quickly, as soon as I qualified, I, I hung up my own shingle. You know, I set up my own practice. And which was very bold of me. And, and I, I did that not because I had any interest in doing people's accounts or tax. I wanted to get to understand businesses. And so people would come along to me that um, uh, give me their accounts to prepare. I'd prepare them. And then I'd start lecturing them about what they should or should not be doing to grow their business. It just sort of really? Yeah. It was just natural to you. It was. Um, I don't know if you remember years and years ago, there was the, there were these books that came out that were printed in a funny sort of, uh, I think it was laser printing. And you couldn't quite tell, these were images, you couldn't quite tell what they were. But when you sort of, um, you know, squinted your eyes a little bit and shifted the page around, you'd see a shark, 3D shark. Jumping. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember, remember those. those. Yeah, uh, I remember those back in the when, day. When I see a set of accounts, financial statements, that's what happens. I see really? the business in three dimensions. And it was... Um, very, very uh, rude of me, almost the extent to which as a young kid, really in my early 20s, I started to do this, but I found I was good at it. And people started to come to me uh, whenever they were going to launch new businesses. And the short version of this is uh, I, I started by helping people write business plans, get loans, that sort of stuff. But more and more, they started to say, hey, Les, you seem to have a knack for this. Would you like to join with me and you know, be on the team, uh, become a board member or an interim CEO or something like that? And over the space of about 10 years, remember I was a kid back then, I got to cherry pick, essentially, hmm. five to eight businesses a year to help wow. start up. And so I, 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 before I was 35, I'd helped launch 42 businesses. That's uh, crazy. Even a dumb Irishman, and believe me, I'm a dumb Irishman, <laughs> begins to see some patterns when you do something that often. Now, two of those businesses failed, and I learned a lot from the patterns of the two failures. Uh, but from all of them, I, I began to see these recurring patterns, and I started to jot them down in notebooks. And then what happened next was I got uh, got a call from a fellow serial entrepreneur, a, a guy who's a good friend, another serial entrepreneur. And he said, hey, there's a branch of the, U- uh, the UK um government here wants me to teach people how to launch businesses. And they're prepared to pay very well for it because we're going to do it in West Belfast, which back then was a real danger zone. Mm-hmm. Would you be interested in joining with me? And I said, sure. And I spent the middle 10 years of my career with that guy, a dear, wonderful a, a guy called Will McKee, 
a great guy, uh, who's sadly now deceased. And we built a business that eventually had 130 people working for us worldwide, 13 offices, wow. places like Singapore, Paris, South Africa, uh, Canada, Toronto, which I know you know of. And uh, what we were doing by then was not just helping people launch businesses, but helping existing businesses grow. And so I began to see a second set of, of patterns that built on top of this. And this was beginning to become uh, the model that I call predictable success. And I got to the point in the late 90s, I'm, I'm 225 years of age, as you know. <laughs> I got to the point in the late 90s where I knew there was a pattern for success, this pattern that I call predictable success. And I was able to predict how businesses would do right from inception, from startup, pre-startup action, through to getting to that peak stage, predictable success. But I didn't have much experience with very, very large companies who were on the decline stage of the of the right. uh, life cycle. And so I moved out to the US very specifically because I had an opportunity to come work with a lot of very large companies on the West Coast. And I spent another 10 years from the late 90s to the mid 2000s finishing the model off. It's all recognition, it's pattern recognition. Mm. And it became this life cycle, this, this arc that I call predictable success with a growth side on the left side and a decline side in the middle. And hey, big surprise, you want to be in the middle at the top yeah. of it. Yeah. It's kind of like a like a hill, right? So yes. you're climbing up, you're building, and then uh, I mean, we'll have some of this in the show notes for you. Um, so, Les, you know what interested me is as I read this. Now, you were studying businesses primarily, but as a church leader for two decades, as I read you describe, as I, I read what you described as the business cycle, I felt like I was reliving my life, like. Uh, and not so much on the other side of the hill, you know, the death rattle and, and mm. so on, but on those startup years and the fun stage and the white water and the predictable success. I'm like, it's like you've been in every single business meeting and you've just followed me around and put labels yes. on what I was trying to figure out. And I thought, where has this book been all my life? Like this would have saved me a lot of brain damage over, right. over time. Do you get that reaction from well, a lot of leaders? Yeah, yeah, it's the funniest thing. It's highly complimentary and, and, and it, it, it still floats my boat. I, I do a lot of public speaking at conferences and events. And uh, it, the same thing happens every time when I finished and I come down off the stage, there is a line of people. I mean, a line of people. And every one of them starts. Years ago, they used to start by saying, um, have you had a spy in my office? And then, yeah. then they started saying, have you been reading? Are you, were you opening my mail? And then but 10 years ago, it, it became, uh, have you been reading my email? And now what everybody, everybody says to me is, have you had a webcam in our office? Yeah. Because it's just that everybody has that resonant uh, uh, response. And, I, and I, I'd put a, a couple of uh, important points in there. I mean, it's great for me. It's a, really a reflection of the model. I don't own this model. I didn't invent it. I just recognize it. You just patterns. described it. It's pattern I just described recognition. What, what happens. That's and exactly it, It's what funny. It. You know, do you find like business leaders, I hear this from church leaders all the time. No, we're different. We're unique. Yes. We have unique challenges. What, yes. what do you say to that? It's true. Uh, but the problem is you can't cope with your uniqueness unless you've got the toolkit to cope with the stuff that's the same. And <laughs> yeah. a, a lot of great businesses never really get to the niche that they want to get to, never get to being as brilliant as they could and should be because they don't have the toolkit to, do, to deal with the mundane. So the 80% that is the same is what we absolutely nail in predictable success. Mm. But I wanted to put just two other things on that, you know, have you been uh, reading my, uh, my mail a point? Um, the, and, and specifically to the church environment, um, there, there are two things I want to point out which are important. One is that that's not surprising uh, because I was an elder in a church, a very fast-growing church, um, for about a decade, right at the heart of the time when I was first recognizing this model. So it's not unusual that I was at least thinking about that application and using that application at the time. The second thing is a much more a broader point, which is, in fact, the predictable success model applies to any group of two or more people trying to achieve common goals. Hmm. It applies to any group of two or more people trying to achieve common goals. And we work with not-for-profits, uh, right. We have, we have um, 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 relationship advisors use our model because right. two or more people, it's a family, right? Families go through early struggle, white water, predictable success, mm -hmm. decline, treadmill, all our stages, the seven stages we talk about. Um, we work with government agencies. Uh, so it applies to any group of two or more people. It's just, I happen to write the book in the context of business because that was the easiest way to get the model right. out. 
It's really people and organizational theory is what it is. And that applies to churches, that applies to startups, to not-for-profits, even probably a community group, right? A community group, any little charity you're running or something like that, or a massive law firm. If you're trying to manage a big law firm, you're going to run into these issues. So church planters and entrepreneurial types, you're probably going to recognize yourself on the front side. Mm -hmm. And then those of you trying to transition churches that are stuck are going to recognize the latter stages beyond predictable success on the other side of the hill. And we'll link to uh, to Les's material so you can visualize that. But take us through, um, if you will, at the pace you want, uh, some of those early stages, how you get to predictable success, and then how you fall out of it. Because this is this is the part that's like, literally, there is a webcam, and you have just been tracking my entire life for two decades of leadership. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the early struggle. Sure. So we're talking about a life cycle that every organization can go through. Now, the important thing here is that if you do the right things, unlike human aging, where we're all condemned to go through all the stages. <laughs> you're going to go through the death rattle. <laughs> you're going to. Uh, organizations don't need to. You can stop right. at any stage if you do the right thing, which is good news. But the seven stages are three on the growth side. If you imagine an arc uh, mm-hmm. going up, there are three stages on the growth side. There's one stage, which is the stage we call predictable success. And I'll define these in a moment or two. And then there are three decline stages. Again, just to say, I didn't make this up. This is just the way life is. The first of the growth stages is what we call early struggle. And it's simply that. It's a struggle. And it's a struggle for a market. And it doesn't matter whether you're running a church or, you know, a plastic extrusion company. You've got to get a market, right? You've got right. to be people who want what you're offering. Okay. True. And church planting is essentially working through early struggle. Trying Typically to find lasts, some people to reach and come to church. Correct. Typically lasts about three years. The first year, you're burned up with your vision and you think you've got the answer to everything and you come to the end of the first year and you realize the market doesn't want what you got. <laughs> the second year is about retooling that and the third year is about getting traction. 80% of all new ventures fail in early struggles. a very dangerous time. Um, and we've all probably witnessed that. But the good news for the um, 20%, the one-fifth that get through early struggle is they get into the first real growth stage, which we call, highly technical term here, we call this stage fun. Because it's fun. It's really fun. It's when everybody's at their most uh, enthused. Uh, There's a small group of people that have got a high degree of momentum. We've found our market and now we're mining that market. It's when we're, whether we're a church or not, it's when the entity, whatever the organization is, is at its most evangelical. You know somebody who's involved in something and fun because if you see them at the other side of the street and they wave at you, if you're dumb enough to go over and talk to them, you'll end up buying what they're selling because <laughs> they're filled with it. They love it. Everybody loves it. And, you know, go back to church um, uh, cycles. That's often the home, you know, the home group sense is really strong. The praise is dynamic. Everybody's coming in and just having fun. Not a huge amount of structure, but a lot of fun. And you're growing, right? Oh, you're growing like growing. And I remember, I think, I think, you know, even in your, in the business context, you know, you're starting to see cash flow positive. You're not living out of cardboard boxes anymore. You're not banging your head on the wall every morning thinking, how the heck do I pay the bills? You know, you've got it going. And uh, that's a great stage. And that's a perfectly good stage to stay in. In fact, Mm -hmm. one of the challenges that I'm going to leave um, the folks that are listening with is you're going to have to decide whether you want to stay in fun because there's nothing wrong with that. That's a great place to be. Or do you want to push through fun? Because what happens next is that at some point, a bit like milk curdling over time, there's something quietly happening to your church or your business or your law firm or whoever it is that you're working with, your organization, which is that that very growth and success and fun is building complexity. Just one little bit at a time. Every day, it just gets a teeny bit com- more complex. Sometimes the complexity uh, is a step up. You know, you open a second church, let's say, or right. you know, a little, or, you know, a little satellite outfit, or you know, you 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 build a second factory, or you start a second shift. But most often, the complexity grows very, very quietly. You don't know what's happening. Mm. And you know, it's a little like that um, story that theoretically, I, I I'm told that if. You put a frog or a toad in warm water, that's yeah. their natural environment. They'll sit there. You can turn the water up one degree at a time. They'll sit there till they boil to death because right. they don't notice it's happening. And at some point, your business, your church, your organization will hit a stage called white water. And what essentially is happening in white water is the complexity reaches the point like the milk curdling 
where we cannot improvise our way to success anymore because mm-hmm. that's what we've been doing in fun. We've been saying yes to everything and working it out later. Yeah, fly by the seat of your pants. It's all working. It's all up and to the right. And what happens is, you know, I don't know if you've ever watched six-year-olds play soccer, but it's <laughs> yes. flock ball. It's just flock ball, right? There's, <laughs> there's just this pile of people. There's 22 of them, including the goalkeepers from both teams, and they're just in one band, and there's this dust bunny above them, where, mm-hmm. and the ball's in there somewhere. Wherever the ball goes, they go. That's what fun is like. What happens in Whitewater is we've got to, for the first time, build systems and processes to manage the complexity if we want to continue to grow. We can choose not to. We can say, I'm not going to do that, but you're going to cap out. And recognizing that and stopping is really important. Now, I want to add one really important layer here, which actually isn't in Predictable Success. Uh, The model is actually in two books. Predictable Success is the first one. The second one is called The Synergist. And I broke the model into two simply because nobody was going to buy a 600-page book. Um, (laughs) But I want to um, put something very important, and particularly for the church, for everybody, but for the church leaders will recognize this. Those businesses and those churches, those entities, you remember the 80% that fail? You know, one of the things that, that distinguishes the 20% that succeed, there's always a combination of two leadership styles, always. First, there's the visionary, what we call the visionary. The visionary, big picture, going to change the world, highly charismatic often, great communicators, drive, 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 let's do it, motivational, and get completely irritated and annoyed with detail. Yes. Right? I, I'm Just familiar with that personality, personally. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. And a lot of new church planters are visioners, right? Mm. They, and that's why they do it. They see the vision, they feel constrained because of what they're doing in their existing uh, place, and they go off to do the new thing. Uh, people who start business, the same thing. I'm working for Big Co. I hate Big Co. They've throttled me. I've got a big vision. I'm going to start my own thing. But what visionaries recognize really early on, they may not use this terminology, is that they're going to die if they have to actually do, if they have to you know, sweep the floors and you know, find tables and desks. And so they link up with someone that we call the operator. Yep. And an operator is just a get it done, we'll go through walls, make it happen individual. Mm-hmm. And this is a highly symbiotic team that work together, and they are who bring fun. A visionary and an operator, a VO, yeah. Uh, you think about it, mom and pop businesses are a subset of visionary operator, you know, right. diner and pops out front, shaking hands with everybody. How's the family? How was the the, the the holiday this year? And mom, who's the operator's back there, making sure that we've got enough biscuits and gravy for tomorrow. Yes. Now, visionaries and operators love improvising. That's They say yes to everything and work it out later. Mm. Here's what happens in Whitewater. For the first time, you've got to bring in at senior level a third style. It's what we call the processor style. Right. The processor, left brain, green eye shade, risk averse, <laughs> all about logical systems and processes, doing things right. Yep. And one of the reasons that any group of people, whether it's in a church or in a business, find whitewater so problematic is that the visionary and operator can finish each other's sentences mm-hmm. and the processor drives them crazy. Yes. Whoever it is just drives them crazy. And whitewater gets worse before it gets better because putting systems and processes in place take time. What do you mean I have to fill in forms? What do you mean you can't just hand me a thousand bucks in petty cash? What what, what do you mean we can't just decide we're going to have a 5,000 person conference in three weeks and get it done? We've always done it before. (laughs) We just made it up and it worked. It worked. Well, we're too big now. And so getting into predictable success, getting out of whitewater into predictable success is all about getting the visionary operator processor to work well together. Mm. And it, um, and it's painful and it's bloody and there's a lot. It's, that's what there's a lot of upheaval in whitewater. We often lose people. Yes. Good people will go because they see this as strife. Did you say like, like founders even quit sometimes in whitewater? Don't they? They, they just they, yeah. they're, they're just I can't take this. So the the key decision to make is this: Do you want to get into predictable success or not? If you do, you've got to battle this and make it work. Right. And if you don't, you've got to be conscious and say we're going to stay this size. We're not going to open third, fourth, fifth outlet or church or factory or whatever it is. We're staying this way and we're going to have fun because I like fun. I made a conscious decision to stay in fun for 16 years. It was fantastic. Then I made the dumb decision to hire my son, made him president of the company. Now we're going through Whitewater for me for the 43rd time. (laughs) So why would you do that? Why would you take the pain of going to predictable success? What's the payoff? It's this. You can do one thing in predictable success that you can't do in fun which is you can scale. Right. You can, that's it. 
That's the only difference, the only reason to do it. And so what I want to um, have our listeners think about is if you feed your in and around whitewater, the key decision to make is do you want to scale? You can grow in fun. That's just one plus one equals two, two plus two. But you can't. You can scale in predictable success. Now, what does it mean to scale? It means you can get as big as your industry. That's right. called church life and industry for a moment, if you'll forgive me. You can get as big as your industry will let you in whatever mm-hmm. geographical arena you want to play in. So if you want to be regional, when you're in predictable success, you can be as big a regional business or church or whatever, as a law firm, totally. as you want to be. If you want to play nationally, you get into predictable success, you can scale to be as big as you want to be. But it's the, the most important thing is to make that decision. Do I want to scale or do I not? What I see over and over again are leaders who haven't consciously made that decision. They get stuck in whitewater for prolonged periods of time, and it's just sheer agony for everybody because you're neither this nor that. Right. So, so what you're saying, let me just back up because this is, this was like, uh, this was the part that read my mail. I recognize stuff. We're climbing the mountain now to get to predictable success. We're going to get to the other side in a little bit in the second half of the interview. But I remember when we moved into Whitewater because it was when we were, because I think fun, when you say fun doesn't scale, you can keep growing, but you hit a ceiling, right? Is what you're saying. You're just going to bump up against that ceiling because the systems allow you to scale beyond that. So for us, that was about five, 600 people. When we hit five or 600 people, I realized I can't make this up as I go along. I can't just, you know, you can't just freewheel it. Like there have to be systems. And we hired uh, our first process person who's a great leader. Um, And she came on board. She came from corporate to our church. She came from Pepsi. And I mean, we got along great personally, but we would drive each other crazy in meetings. Mm. And we had a corporate coach at the time come in and help us realize that she named the moment that we were in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because when I would have some big visionary idea and I loved your like, hey, we can do a conference. We can do it in three weeks and it can have 500 people here. Like in my mind, that's all possible. And she'd sure. be like, well, how much is it going to cost? Who's going to pay for it? What line item in the budget? It's like, I don't even want line items in the budget. Like right. just make it happen. Right. <laughs> And so we got to a point, took us a year or so, but we got to a point where we both realized, oh my goodness, we play valuable roles on this team. Mm -hmm. And now we're twice that size. And we're in a place where it's that tension that you talk about in predictable success between systems and entrepreneurial zeal. And and that was hard. That was really hard for me as a leader. And, you know, the hardest thing is you, you don't have a name for it. We did, and, and you, therefore, what happens is you think it's interpersonal. That's the point. Bingo. I, here's one of the great things I get to do. We get to do uh, my company. Um, so we coach a lot of executive teams, as you might imagine. We're coaching people out of whitewater into predictable success, back from treadmill, which we'll talk about in a moment. Right. When we go in and share the synergist, um, the predictable success model, and the synergist leadership styles that we just talked about, visionary operator, processor, and there's a fourth one called the synergist. In one day. In one day, we drain out about 80% of the tension and conflict in every team. Mm -hmm. In one day. Because what happens is Fred's sitting there thinking, I get it. Jeannie, it drives me crazy, not because she's Jeannie. It's because she's a processor. Right. And I see everything she says as half glass empty, risk averse, just saying no to everything. And Jeannie's sitting there thinking – Oh, I thought Fred was just a hyperbolic con artist. She would never say that, of course. <laughs> no, of course not. I realize now he's just a visionary, right? You know? And when, when Fred comes in and says we signed a million-dollar contract, well, now I recognize because these folks just pointed out that a visionary, a million bucks is anything north of 650000 right? <laughs> That's right. It was a million in my mind. <laughs> but to, to me, as a, as a processor, a million's a million, right? And the operator who's core, and it is one of the key things that happens, one of the reasons why we lose people in Whitewater, operators don't want any part of that. They just want to be doing something. So when something new begins to happen, which is we're having team-based decisions being made, so that means we're getting in rooms and having meetings. Do you know what the operator's doing? The operator's scratching and going crazy, and their knees are jiggling up and down. And eventually they say, look, I tell you what, I got real work to do. Why don't you two just tell me what you decide, and I'll do it, okay? But I'm <laughs> out of here. And they start to exempt themselves from meetings. Yes. 
And of course, when they begin to realize, oh, the visionary and the processor, it means we can get them back in because what happens when you, the operator leaves the room is we bec- the organization will always make an over V or over P decision. It's either going to be too okay. crazy, if you'll excuse the yeah. language, yeah. I never really hold up and be implemented, or it's going to be so granular that we'll never get it done because there's so much, there's so much detail here. And the operator brings the real world into the discussion, and we've got to get him or her back in. So that's all of that interdynamic is wonderful. But the notion that you can stop people saying it doesn't take all of the interpersonal stuff away. Of course, there's still degrees to which people just you know drive you crazy. But to watch a team in one day happens over and over again. Just their eyes are getting wider, and they're and, and one of the things I love is people start laughing and pointing at each other. And said, "Oh, you're having a little processor moment there, are you?" Or, <laughs> you know, I think we have enough visionary in this discussion. It just changes that dyma- dynamic overnight. As you can hear, I get a little passionate about it because no, I love that. It is so good because it took us a year to figure out this isn't interpersonal, and we had the good fortune of actually liking each other. Right, but I in know. meetings, we would drive each other crazy, right. and. You, you finally, we didn't have the language until, you know, I read your book last year, or earlier this year. It's like, oh, that's what's going on. And I think that, you know, what's so surprising is, to quote Andy Stanley, knowing this can help you go further faster. You can just take some shortcuts and go, we need people like you at this stage and so on. So um, 80% of the businesses, and I think it's close to 70 to 80% of the churches never get out of early struggle. Mm-hmm. Then you move into fun where you're actually growing a little bit and, you know, you have some money for the first time and you've got staff and you've got volunteers. And it's not that the struggle's gone, but it's it's really it's really great. And then it get, gets complex. You get into whitewater. I remember we still joke, like, do you remember we can have leadership team in a car or like mm-hmm. a booth at a restaurant? Sure. That's and we right. would just make the decisions and that was it. And it took five minutes. And now we have to have meetings and there has to be a process and there ha- yeah. there's expense forms and the whole deal. And fun, a board meeting is right up in the elevator. Exactly. Exactly. And some people want to live there, right? Correct. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a great no. place to be. But you just have to realize you are giving up scalability. Scalability. You'll Correct. just never have 15 campuses. You'll never. And maybe Correct. that's fine. Maybe that's I, fine. I, I think it is perfectly fine. I have a lot of, uh, I mean, I've, I've been in fun in a lot of my businesses and loved it. Like I said, I, in my current company, Predictable Success itself, I wrote the darn book. I've been in fun for 16 years and loved it. <laughs> you know, nothing wrong with it. Yeah. So now you get to Whitewater where there's, mm-hmm. there's that tension but you can come out of whitewater, and what happens? This is where you get to the top of the hill to the predictable success. So walk us through that. So when you get into predictable success, um, and by the way, spoiler alert, the quick way to do that is that um, the, those visionary operator processor styles that we talked about, they're all innate. You can't do anything about it. You're a visionary. It's who you are. It's who you are. You're There's just a, a visionary. Cut me open. That's what I bleed. Correct. And most of us are sort of a little common. I'm a, I'm a VP. I'm a big V, small P. Big okay. visionary. So most of us have got a little DNA there. Um, and by the way, if, if your folks are interested in this, we can put the link up. They can go take a free quiz and work out what they are. But here's the the money shot, so to speak. There is a fourth style. It's We call it the synergist style. And it's a learned style. Okay. And the synergist utilizes something we call the enterprise commitment. And here's what the enterprise commitment says. Inc. Magazine called it the 20 most powerful words in business. And I'm not going to disagree with them. The enterprise commitment says, when I'm in a group or team environment, I'm going to put the interests of the enterprise what we're there to talk about ahead of my own. Dead simple. Brilliant. And every synergist out there saying, what, you're peddling that? I mean, that's like breathing. That's common sense. But most visionaries, operators, and processors step back a bit and say, well, yeah, that's really powerful. When I'm in a group or team environment, I put the interest of the enterprise, that's what we're there to just talk about, ahead of my own. And I'm, but what I mean by ahead of my own is not I want a big car or I want a bigger office. I mean ahead of my need to scratch my visionary itch, my operator itch, my processor itch, right? I don't want to bring – if a processor stop bringing 60-page PowerPoints to every single meeting. If, I'm a, if a visionary stop and, you know, hijacking the agenda, which is what visionaries do. Hyperlinking was made for visionaries. If you're an operator, you stop you know, just getting out and leaving meetings early. The enterprise commitment gets you sitting, sitting there working as a synergist. And that gives you the one thing and the only thing you need to run it, not the only thing, but the thing that everything else that uh, running a complicated business and predictable success flows from is something incredibly mundane, but it's probably the most powerful thing I'm going to say today on this podcast. The thing you've got to get good at to stay in predictable success is high quality team-based decision-making. I'm falling asleep here, listeners. I'm falling asleep (laughs) myself, but that's, 
predictable success, businesses and predictable success are complex. That's how they got there. They became complex. Mm-hmm. You can't make decisions riding up in the elevator by yourself. You've right. got to get in a room with a bunch of other people, virtually or otherwise, and make high-quality team-based decisions. And, and if we build the synergist style in the group, and they learn to not just be out and out visionary operators or processors all the time, but be able to call in their synergist um, leadership style, then you get to stay in predictable success. And theoretically, we can do that as long as we want. You can cycle on predictable right. success forever. Um, I think GE, which is a great example, by the way, of a leader, Jack Welch, who went from starting as a processor engineer, mm-hmm. becoming a visionary, and eventually a synergist. He learned the quality and importance of people in the end of his, by the end of his career. I have a, a, a graphic design company back in the UK that I started working with 35 years ago, being in predictable success all that time. You do the right things, you can stay there. But here's what happens for most businesses is this. Remember in Whitewater what we had to do that was most painful that got us out? It was getting the processor role in and accepting it and learning how to work with it. We get the processor role in. Oh, that was painful. That was hard. But look at the benefits. We're, we're growing like crazy. We're scaling. So if processes are good and it gives us that, what do we do next? Put right. more in. Put more in. And what happens in most organizations is the processor role begins to dominate. Mm-hmm. Processors are like rabbits. Put two of them in a cubicle and come back six months later, there'll be 12 of them, right? <laughs> That's the way it happens. Because what are they doing? They're designing systems and processes. When they've designed them, they need people to run them. Who are they going to hire to run the systems and processes? More many P's. Right. And so and we all the, want to reproduce ourselves, right? At right. The end of the day. Right. But what happens with the processor role is it begins to atrophy the organization. Processors begin to become so dominant at all layers in the organization that the ability to be nimble and flexible starts to go away. So is this where it becomes the bureaucracy? This is where it becomes, there's 17 forms to fill out, to even fill out the form before you do that? Correct. And there are two phases in that. So we're predictable success with the top of the curve. We move into a stage called, we call treadmill. And treadmill is the mirror opposite of Whitewater. In Whitewater, for the first time, we were the under-processed organization needed systems and processes. In Treadmill, for the first time, we're an over-processed organization. We have too much. We're starting to emphasize form over function. You know, FaceTime begins to become important. You know, if you're not on a Kaizen or a Six Sigma or some other cross-functional thing, you're not one of us. Uh, right. you know, meetings are held, and because they're blocked out for an hour, we're going to have them for an hour. Whether you know, we need them or not. And we start to use the word phrase compliance a lot. You've got to comply with this and comply with that. The website's got to be HTML5 compliant. doesn't matter whether it's very good or not. You know, <laughs> but we worry more about getting the precise Pantone color for our logo than right. whether our marketing materials are really good. Whether and anyone's just, looking at your logo. It's just, correct. hey, we have a good logo. It's process versus outcome. And treadmill's a, a natural stage. You know, it happens. You get up into predictable success and, you know, just sort of sit there pointing due north. It's sort of more like a, a rev counter in the car. You know, the needle moves backwards and forwards towards white water, back over to treadmill. And every organization dips into treadmill from time to time. What's vitally important is what you do as a result. Mm-hmm. And typically what will happen is the visionary puts their hand up. This is crazy. Why does somebody have to fill in a form with 17 fields in it just to get an appointment. Yes. All we need is their email address or their phone. That's all. Why are we doing that? You know, why have we got a team of seven people proofing every document that goes out? Maybe two would be quite enough. And here's the key deciding moment in this organization's life. Does the visionary get heard or do they not? If the visionary gets heard, we'll lift our foot off the processes somewhat. It's like lifting your foot off the brake. The organization come back into predictable success and you've got regain control. If the visionary does not get heard, they then begin to leave. They'll start to exit, either literally, physically going. They will quit the organization. Or they'll just withdraw their visionariness, you know, the, the, the discretionary challenge function. And they'll so suck they it stop up. speaking at meetings. Or yeah. they, they're just like, I don't care anymore. You guys are running. Why am I going to this? Yeah. And don't forget, this was the business, the church, whatever, that the visionary originally left to go yeah. start their own thing. And they're sitting thinking, how did this happen? How did we get here? And of course, all the other sort of um, mini Vs who have developed over time, that's when they start thinking, I can do better than this. And they go off. And so vision begins to leave the organization. 
and you're left with just the operators and processors, and the organization slides into the penultimate last but one stage, which we call the big rut. The right. big rut. And the big rut, and we show it in the in the model as being a you know a somewhat precipitous decline. In fact, it's a long, long, slow slide into irrelevance. That's mm. what happens. It's a long, slow slide into irrelevance. Everybody's in their comfort zone. Um, why can you stay in the big rut so, so long? Because you've been in predictable success. You've done very, very well. Yeah. Think of Microsoft, classic example of a business that right now is in the big rut. The visionaries have all gone. Yep. And by the way, once the visionaries go, guess who leaves pretty soon thereafter? The operators, because they need visionaries to feel relevant. Otherwise, right. they, they're doing stupid so stuff. So it's all processors. All processors. But you're making hundred billion a quarter. <laughs> Correct. So, Correct. You know. Yeah. And, you know, customers are just a pain in the neck. You know, us processors, we got this. Hey, we got this. We're going to go broke precisely on time. We've got this <laughs> sorted, right? And the the bad news is once you're in predictables, once you're in the big rut, here's the yeah. key distinction between the big rut and treadmill. It's a vital distinction. And you'll have seen this in the business world and in the church world. In treadmill, yeah, this is not good. And you know what? You can self-diagnose. Now, right. whether you'll fix it or not is another issue, but you can self-diagnose. Right. So there's still tension. There's still tension. Tension. Right? And there's a challenge function. I'm just trying to get the picture of this. So the visionaries are upset. But the processors are like, no, we need the 17, you know, fields in order to get an appointment. This is happening in Google right now as we speak. Wow. The visionaries, uh, other than the two main ones, uh, who actually aren't visionaries. That's another whole other story in tech. Um, uh, genius processors be- get confused with visionaries. And there are a lot of genius processors running. Well, that's a whole other discussion. But anyway, <laughs> if, you, if you look at uh, Google's recent news, um, boom, 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 three High visionaries, gone, because they're not being listened to. And they're going to slide into the big rut, and then it's over. And the reason it's over is this. You get into the big rut, you've lost the power to self-diagnose. You've lost it. You like it like this. It's. I mean, if you want to see the big rut in action, just go to your local DMV, get your driver's license, right? (laughs) Right. And customers just a pain in the neck, right? I'm in my comfort zone. I'm getting paid my my, – no, that's a bit unfair. I'm sure there's some very vibrant, enthusiastic, fun-filled DMV somewhere. I just haven't met them yet, right? But everybody's punching the clock and they're comfortable and and they've lost self-awareness. And lost any interest in uh, ownership of what they're doing and self-accountability, which is the touchstone of predictable success is that there's always high ownership, high self-accountability. So we get into the the big rut – Harvard University, client of mine, been in the big rut for over 100 years, but it's got near cash, not funny investments, cash or near cash of $33 billion. So it's not going anywhere soon. Microsoft has got the balance sheet the size of a minor nation, right? Not going anywhere soon. But uh, General Motors in the big rut, not going anywhere soon. But generationally, those businesses are dying and they've lost the power to self-diagnose. They're never coming back. And eventually you hit the final stage. We call it death rattle. And in death rattle, there's some artificial signs of life. There are transactions happen and news, but it's just the dying entity dying. And we saw Kodak, for example, a couple of years go through yeah. the death rattle, right? The, the name still exists, but it's a, a guy who owns a bunch of patents that he's buying mm. and selling off. Uh, most of us have watched um, the RIM, the BlackBerry manufacturer. Yes. Yeah. Oh, the whole cycle in our time. Right. Remember, in, in the last 15 years. Of, one of your Canadian. Uh, it is. Hey, my my <laughs> son spent uh, his first year or two in computer engineering at Waterloo, where it all started. Yeah, there you go. So you remember uh, uh, for, uh, early struggle, uh, first BlackBerry. What the heck is that, right? Yep. I mean, nobody's ever going to use that. Nobody will then, use it. It's a pager. Fun, you know, uh, we begin to see like five, six people, you know, in my circle had a BlackBerry. And then Whitewater, could they scale? Could they make enough of these things? And then predictable success, Crackberry. Do you remember? Yep. Everybody had them. Everybody had yep. them. Then into Treadmill, they just they didn't refresh the, the product line. They didn't refresh the software. They never got on the app bandwagon or they got on way, way too late. So they got into Treadmill. And then in the big rut, self-denial, trying the same product over and over again. Mm-hmm. And now Death Rattle, they're actually advertising in the merger and acquisition trade papers, please come and buy us. We are dead. <laughs> you know? I don't think they actually use those words, but that's essentially. They might as well have said that, right? Now, I know, uh, so we said, hey, church planters and growing church leaders, you're going to recognize the front side of the hill, the climb up mm-hmm. to predictable success. But there's a lot of people who've moved into 
establish churches, church plants that maybe have seen better days, um, denominations, uh, seminaries that are definitely on the other side of the hill. And it either feels like a bureaucracy, they're in the big rut where everybody's lost self-awareness and the visionary leaders are gone, or they're in death rattle. Yeah, correct. What do, you, what do you do when you're there? Can you get back or no, is it I, over? That's, that's one of the important things to, to bear in mind is that treadmill is an existential moment in the existence of any organization. You either reverse it or you die. Wow. You cannot fix an organization in the big rut. You can't. What you can do is break it up into many, many small pieces and let them try. That'll, that'll, it's a bit like um, uh, smashing the neutron. Okay. You, if you break a very large, so one of the options open to Microsoft that may, I think is probably the most likely thing, is that it gets broken up into somewhere between five and seven operated, separate operating divisions, right? So they go back to the, the Nokia stuff gets kicked out, it goes back to making phones, they have a software division, they have a cloud division, whatever way they split it up. That's like splitting the neutron. And mm. so long as the senior management all go, all of them, yeah. that gives the opportunity to restart on the other side of the of the um, life cycle. But that's very rare because what is happening in most big rut organizations is the senior people at the very top have a huge vested interest in keeping it the way it is, and it's called compensation. Yes. Now, it may be monetary. It may be status. It may be a combination of both. Um, you know, these people are the aristocracy. They're going to their country clubs or whatever mm-hmm. it is and being lauded. Uh, Microsoft as the, or you know, fill yeah. in the blank. And then there's equivalence in the church world too. Um, but so, and for that reason, there, there's an internal resistance to anything that's going to be uh, such a massive amount of change. It typically only happens when uh, in the business world, a corporate waiter or somewhat similar to that comes in. And it's very rare. So what you've got to do is you've got to fix it in treadmill. And that means getting the synergist role very strong because it's the synergist that keeps the balance between visionary operator processor right. and it's the and it's the getting the balance wrong that shifts the organization in the treadmill would get over processed what is a couple of questions for you so what are, what are some of the defining characteristics what's the difference between treadmill and the big rut like what is the fall off that cliff where all of a sudden it's like you're not in treadmill anymore number 1 is an uh, absence of a challenge factor that's that's and that's the one that nobody will will call out. Um, okay. What will get typically get called out is uh, lack of innovation. We've stopped right. innovating uh, because that usually the market shows that. Right. right? And we haven't can, done anything new in a long time. No, and even in the church world, you can you know we've all been there. You know, we really don't do this all. I mean, this year's calendar looks exactly like well, maybe not last year's calendar, but the year before because we're yes. rotating stuff every two years now, right? <laughs> um, lack of innovation is uh, the one that's normally seen, but the reason for that is typically lack of a challenge factor. Nobody's putting their hand up and saying, "No, no, wait a minute, why would we do it that way?" Right. And that and that's very hard to call out. It's one of the reasons we. I mean, let me be very mercenary and blunt here. It's one of the reasons we get called in a lot is because we, an outsider can come in and sit with a group of people and say, why would you do that? Yeah. that in a way that people who have got the legacy and history of having been part of the team for many years can't. So the lack of a challenge factor that leads to a lack of innovation. Mm. Okay, so that's good to know. And usually by the time you get to the big rut, the visionaries are gone or they've completely shut up. In yes. other words, everybody's just, you know, sitting in their cubicle, getting their stuff done. Oh my goodness, it's four o'clock time to right. go home, right? Okay. And if the founding visionaries anywhere, he or she has become like a chairman emeritus yep. and, you know, comes by twice a year and says hi to Waves, everybody. hello, but they're yeah. gone. They've, they've, yep. They're gone a long time ago. So predictable success is really, and you're going to say it a thousand times better than I am, but just to be clear to everybody, it's when you keep in tension the need for systems and the entrepreneurial drive. Is that that's right? Exactly, that's exactly right. Okay. And it's like tacking a, a, a ship or a boat. You know, you don't, if I want to get from this side of the riverbank to the other side and I get in my little boat, I can't just take a straight line and get across there. You're constantly tacking, in essence, between the visionary mindset and the processor mindset. Because if you remember what we talked about before, the operator absents themselves from that type of argument and discussion because it drives them crazy. And so in those organizations that get into predictable success briefly, 
and then either hurtle into treadmill, which happens a lot, mm-hmm. or slide back into white water, which happens a lot and is really painful. That's because of the lack of the learned synergist style. Right. Now, people have been doing this for centuries and never used any of this terminology. They didn't call it synergist style. They just talked about being you know, good leaders and being good team members. Hmm. And this isn't quite the same thing. It's not just being a good team member because you can be a good team member and not get anything done. But we talk over and over and over again about the need to become a machine for decision making. Uh, That's not to remove the humanity from all of this, but you've got to have in your business a machine that turns out high quality decisions. Hmm. And that machine is typically the senior executive team starts this. And so we start with the senior executive team. We help them identify their visionary operator processor tendencies. We t- there's, there's typically going to be one or more synergists in there who have learned how to be a good synergist. And we teach that, we show them all the vocabulary, and then teach them all how to. It's sort of like having an over, overdrive in your stick shift car hmm. or, or, a, or an overdrive button in your non stick shift car. The synergist style is like being able to go into decision making overdrive. Gotcha. Uh, And uh, that's what keeps you in predictable success. Because otherwise you stop making decisions. You're just a bureaucracy. You're working in it. You're not working on it. And on the other hand, you're not just making decisions in the elevator anymore because you're too big to make those decisions. There's a team, there's accountability, and there's a process. Right. Super helpful. Hey, I know you've been extremely generous with your time today, and I'm, I'm so grateful. But I promise you there's some leaders here who are going, Oh my goodness, I, I'm really nervous. The startup people are all like, they got hope now because they know sure. how to scale it. But there are, there are entrepreneurial leaders, there are young leaders listening right now, young pastors, young church leaders, business leaders who work in the marketplace by day but serve on an elder board at night who go, we are in the big rut or we are in the death rattle. <laughs> what would you say to leaders who just realize they are a fish out of water and maybe there's no hope in their denomination, no hope in their church, no hope in the system that doesn't want to change? Well, you know, I get that. I get asked that a lot and I, and I can't back off of it. Um, it, it take a half a day, just how long it'll take, um, and diagnose whether the church or the business that you're in is in treadmill or in the big rut. In other words, is there still a challenge function? If there is, there's hope. You're gonna, and you're gonna have to gird your loins and go in there and crank up that challenge function. Yeah. If you can look around and say, "I'm going to be honest," there isn't. I'm a lone voice in the wilderness. It's done. It's yeah. over. You just got to accept that. See, I came into um, three churches 21 years ago that were in death rattle. I mean, right. average attendance of six, fourteen, and twenty-three. So forty some odd people adding them all together, mm. and they had been that way for years. But what I found early on was I was the entrepreneurial leader and there was immediate resonance with some people. If mm-hmm. they if they had been like, no, nah, there's nothing wrong, I would have moved on. And and actually, we had a recent episode, we'll link to it in the show notes, with Grant Vissers, where that was the case. He was the lone entrepreneur. He lasted a year. He left. Uh, Brian Wangler, who also was on the podcast, we'll link to his episode in the show notes. He found life in small churches too. But I guess the key would be, can you rally a core? Is that what you're saying? Can you at least find five other people who agree with you? Yeah, but you're going to have to lead them out of the entity that they're in. Really? See, we regenerated it, but over five years, we sold those buildings. We started a new church together. I guess you're right. You rebirthed it. We rebirthed it. We We rebirthed something new out of it. And that's that's possible. Uh, In fact, it's one of the very few things that you can do. Yeah, in other words, it's Microsoft breaking up into all of its divisions and starting Correct. something new. Correct. All right. So basically, you're going to have to raise the dead. You're going to have to. You're going to have to do something brand new. And I guess if they're finding that they are the lone voice, you either get out or you become one of those zombies walking around half dead. Really? Correct. Is that it? That's that. That is sadly uh, precisely it. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, does happen in the church space is that. Um, People, for wonderful reasons, want to take on lost causes. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say we, we, we almost, the, the, the resonance of uh, resurrection is such a strong thing yes. that we sometimes believe in it in situations where it's just not, I'm not going to say it's not possible, it's not the right thing there are times i mean go back to the proverbs there are times when we just got to move on from some things now 
in business, the market dictates an awful lot of that, right? right. And we, we just learned that. I mean, in 15 years, Microsoft highly unlikely to be around in the same shape that it's in because the market will have deserted it. Yes. Uh, GM Motors are a, bit, are a bit better off because the uh, technological cycle at the moment in their industry is not as high. And that's all going to change in the next uh, five or 10 years with driverless cars and so forth. Uh, but in the church, what we can do is we can go on literally for generations in the big rut or close to the death, the death rattle. Because you can always find 30 people to fund something for themselves, right? Sure. It's sure. like, hey, we're going to gather here. Maybe one day my kids or somebody else's kids will gather here and we'll just fund this for ourselves. And they don't want to change. Right. Correct. They just they don't want to change. And I guess that's one of you tell this story in predictable success of this almost mausoleum company in the the mm. the, the death rattle. Candy factory. Yeah, candy factory. Was that was that an actual company or that it was, was like was. I'm not gonna really? name it over the air. No, fact, don't, to, don't name I, it. I had but. to work very hard to strip uh, to um, take out a lot of the identifying um, uh, characteristics, but anybody in a certain part of uh, Scotland would have known that company instantly mm-hmm. from how I described it. And yes, that was a real coming out. It was a real uh, event, the, the, this little scenario that I, uh, more or less every single one of the um, opening stories in Predictable Success are, are pretty close to being 100% what happened on occasions in order to get the um, message over. I changed a few things around, but yeah, no, that wow. was a real company. You know, and I, I, you know, we, we have a lot of authors on here, but predictable success was just such a huge factor for me. And I know you've got the, 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 the framework now for uh, less is life work, really. And I'm going to definitely read the synergist next. Any parting thoughts for church leaders, uh, less before we go? Any anything you would say to people either on the front side, the startup days, or the death rattle days, or the big rut? Uh, I would say to the to the folks that are on the front side to get really clear about whether they want to be in fun or in predictable success. Mm-hmm. Do they want scalability? And there's nothing wrong with that. I think we we poo poo a little bit the sense of um, personal ambition uh, that that comes with wanting a mega church, for example. Um, but there are a lot of very good reasons for doing that. But if that make the decision, is that what you want? You want something huge or do you want to stay in fun? For goodness sake, don't get yourself stuck in whitewater. It can become bitter, acrimonious, painful, horrible. And to the folks that – so make the decision, fun or, yeah. or predictable success. Um, um, scale or not. Uh, and, and for the folks that are on the other side – I'd, I'd simply repeat what I said before. If you can look around and see that there's still a challenge function here and that you can be part of that, then get your shoulder behind the wheel with, by, by all accounts and, and do what you can to change from within. But my advice over many, many decades now of watching this happen is if there's no strong challenge function there, you're not going to change it. The system will change you because it has become a system. Right. It's not an end. It's not you will an, become an, one of them. It's not an organism us. anymore. It's a system. Uh, wow. And, and it will win. Les, I know people are going to want more. Um, we'll have all the links in the show notes, but um, where can they find you online? And there's a test they can take to find out what stage their organization is at. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, everything that anybody would want, uh, we have so many free resources that, that people can get, is at our website, which is predictable success, all one word, predictablesuccess.com. And there is a link uh, up on the top menu to our resources section. And we have just downloadable stuff uh, how to become a machine for decision making, uh, how to build. There's an awful lot of uh, free stuff around how to build that synergist uh, leadership style. And there is a link there to the synergist quiz. You can go there right away by just uh, typing in synergist quiz, all one word, synergistquiz.com. It's real simple, uh, multiple choice. The visionaries will hammer it out in about seven minutes. The processors will take them maybe 12 or 13. And <laughs> the operators all have got better things to do. Um, but uh, it's it's very good, very valuable. Um, we get we've had over 30,000 people take it now, and, and we get a lot of feedback from people who said the, the feedback they get, you put your email in, you'll get a more detailed response from us. The, the feedback they get has been really, really helpful for their development as leaders. Well, this has been a huge gift to so many church leaders, so many business leaders. I can't thank you enough. Les McEwen, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Bye, everybody. 
Well, you're probably going to want more. I, I sure did. You can get everything in the show notes today at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 112. Also, remember, Canadians or those interested in postmodern culture, subscribe to the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you so much to trainedup.org for sponsoring us. And remember the uh, free sample you get in the show notes today. And I just want to say it's going to be a lot of fun to be back next week. This podcast keeps growing. It is crazy. We have seen a 50% spike in the last couple of months, just in downloads and listens. And I just want to thank you so much for sharing it. Hey, if this is helping you, would you share it with a friend? Would you also leave a rating and review on iTunes? Because that really helps get the word out. So if this was helpful to you, make it helpful to somebody else. You can subscribe on iTunes, on Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, leave a rating or review wherever you listen. And we'll be back next week. I got a fun episode Rich Birch is back. He was with us for episode eight and Rich has done some fascinating research into like dozens of churches and he's going to talk about what he calls unreasonable churches and how they defied the odds in their community. In other words, this is not supposed to happen, but it happened and there will be a ton of practical takeaways for you and your church wherever you happen to be. So that's episode 113. That is next week. If you subscribe, you'll have it automatically Tuesday. Hey, we'll see you then. And I really hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.